0: It's good to be together again to remember the Lord and it's good to have this opportunity to share God's Word with you. So over the past little while I've been interested in speaking about the Lord's Prayer and thinking about some of the specific requests that the Lord tells us that we ought to make. So we're going to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and continue looking at the Lord's Prayer. Um, Specifically this morning then, Thanks. So specifically then this morning that we're going to look at that request, thy kingdom come, and and think about what that means. And as we've already mentioned, the Lord taught his disciples this prayer so that they would know what things to emphasise when praying, so that they would know what priorities they should have in their prayers. Because, of course, we can know nothing about God except what God has revealed of himself to us. And precisely because we're dependent on God revealing himself to us, then we need him to tell us how we ought to pray. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to pray properly. You see, if we just approach God emphasising the things that we think are important without any regard to what God thinks is important, then God simply will not listen to us. Our prayers will not be in accordance with what he wants. So we need then God to illuminate us so as to understand what he values so as to pray in accordance with his will. And so we ought to be very grateful that None other than the Son of God himself, while here upon earth, took it upon himself to instruct us in priorities for prayer. And so a few weeks ago we considered the petition, Hallowed be your name. And we suggested that coming at the very start of the prayer, this request that God's name be hallowed sets the first priority which is essentially that we want God's honour and reputation to be at the forefront of our minds. We want God's honour to be esteemed by everyone, everywhere. And furthermore, because God has chosen to make himself known in this world through a holy people, when we pray, Hallowed be your name, we're actually asking that God would make his name be holy through us, and we're so speaking about the importance of our own holiness as well. But first and foremost then, what we're seeing in this prayer is that God's honour is paramount. It's first and foremost. And then the second petition that we've got in the prayer builds on that, because not only do we seek his reputation first and foremost, but we long for his kingdom to come and for his reign to be manifested throughout the world. But what exactly does that mean? What exactly does it mean to pray that God's kingdom would come? Because we want to pray these words intelligently, not just by rote. Lots of people pray the Lord's Prayer because they've memorised it and they don't even think about the words that they're praying. I remember my dad told told me about how his own father, my grandfather, came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And one night, when he was at the side of his bed praying, he used to say the Lord's Prayer every night before he went to bed. And so he was an unconverted man, and he was saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and, and so on. And when he got to the end of the prayer, his wife, my grandmother, Lottie, turned to him and said, Do you really know what you're asking for? Do you really want the Lord Jesus Christ to come back in his kingdom? Because where would that find you? And that spoke to my grandfather, and as a result of that, my grandfather came to know the Lord Jesus. And so it's really important then that we understand what we're praying when we ask for God's kingdom to come. But without further ado then, let's read the passage together from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. And then think about what this specifically means. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. The Lord Jesus speaks and says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Oh. Father, as we consider this prayer together, as we consider these, these words together about wanting your kingdom to come illuminate our minds that we would understand it rightly and so to prioritize what you have asked us to pray for and to do so intelligently and so we ask for your help now as we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So what exactly does it mean to pray for God's kingdom to come? Well, In the words immediately preceding it, we have read that God is our Father in heaven, and so we're thinking about him as being in heaven. And then in the words following it, we ask that we want God's will to be done on earth as it is done in heaven. So at the very least, what we can deduce from these words is that when we want God's kingdom to come, what we're saying is something to the effect of we want God's reign to be manifested on earth in the same sort of way as it's manifested in heaven. We want God's reign to be visible here upon earth. And there's more that we could say than that, but I think at the very outset, that's the very least that we could say. And like I said, I think we can say a lot more than that, because even though these words that the Lord Jesus uses are very short and very compact, They actually draw on the whole Bible storyline when the Lord Jesus talks about wanting God's kingdom to come. And when I talk about the story of the Bible, I'm not meaning it in the sense of a fictional story. I mean it in the sense of the real, true story. The story of what God has been doing and is doing in our world to accomplish redemption. And so, like I said, when the Lord Jesus Christ asks us to pray, your kingdom come, he is drawing on the whole story of the Bible from the very beginning. And so what I want to do then is think about how the kingdom of God is a concept that appears from the very beginning and runs right through our Bibles, right to the very end. Because at the very start of our Bibles, we're faced with this idea of a kingdom, Even when God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, we read that God blesses them and says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, have reign over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And so we see that from the very outset, what God is doing is he is constituting Adam and Eve as rulers Under his authority, of course, but as rulers over the entire creation that he had made. Their kingly authority was a gift from a gracious God who was bestowing upon them a kingdom to reign over and enjoy. And of course, the tragedy of what plays out in the Garden of Eden, of course, is that rather than Adam and Eve exercising the authority over creation, what you get is the creature, the serpent, coming along to Adam and Eve and subverting God's order. And rather than Adam and Eve obeying God and ruling over creation, what we see is the snake, the serpent, the devil, exalts himself. Over Adam and Eve and tells them what they should do and instead of listening to God and ruling over creation they listen to the creature and defy the creator. And so this kingdom that should have been something which is a source of joy for them in the Garden of Eden became frustrated and ruined. And then God cast this curse upon Adam and Eve, the curse upon the ground itself, so that no longer would they enjoy this kingdom that God had given to them, but this world would be a source of frustration and pain for them. And what does God do then after that fall that rebellion in the Garden of Eden, does God simply wipe his hands of us and say, no, that's it. Let mankind fizzle and perish into nothingness because they have defied me. Does God do that? No, not at all. Absolutely not. Because the rest of the Bible is the story of what God has done and is doing to undo the effects of their fall. The story of the Bible is the story of how God is restoring mankind's dominion over creation To enjoy the kingdom of God as he intended it to be. And so the way God then throughout the Bible goes about bringing his kingdom to pass is through what the Bible describes as covenants. These are essentially promises or pledges from God by which he meets with specific people and assures them that they are going to have a key role in bringing about God's kingdom purposes for the world. They're going to have key roles in undoing the effects of the fall and bringing about God's kingdom. So we come to Abraham, for example, in Genesis chapter 12. And God comes to him and says that he will make of Abraham a great nation. And through him, all of the families in the earth will be blessed. Rather than cursed, they're going to be blessed. The effects of the fall are going to be undone through this one man and through his offspring. And again in Genesis chapter 17, and verse 6, God says to Abraham, I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. So what we're seeing is that God is saying there's going to be a kingly line that comes from Abraham that's going to bring about God's kingdom to the earth. And so you fast forward then through centuries to come to King David. One of the fulfillments of God's promise to Abraham, and what's the most remarkable about King David is not the fact that he was a courageous man, not the fact that he was a, even a faithful man, not even the fact that he was a successful man. What was most remarkable about King David was that God made a covenant with King David. God specifically chose David. To fulfill his kingdom purposes. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks directly to David and says to him, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, that is when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And again, in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So God is promising to David that he is going to bring about his kingdom through one of David's descendants, and it will last forever. And it's important to see here that God isn't doing something different from what he had originally planned at the creation with Adam and Eve, this isn't something completely different. Rather, what God is doing is he is working to re-establish his reign, to undo the effects of the fall and sin and rebellion, and bring about his kingdom once again, through one of David's descendants. And so we're saying that the promise is made through these covenants to Abraham and to David that one of these descendants will re-establish God's reign. And so the rest of the Old Testament then, ever since David died, becomes devoted to this question of who is this king going to be? Who is this person going to be? And how is he going to bring about God's kingdom upon earth? And years went by. And the people of Israel rebelled against God once again. And they forgot about the importance of serving and worshipping God. And God cast them off into exile. He destroyed the kingdom so there were no longer any kings that ruled over Israel. And the people were dispersed. And for some people then they simply forgot about God's promise to bring about a kingdom for some people it was just a wistful ideal some dream pie in the sky that God would be able to bring about a kingdom it all seemed that it had come to nothing but some people within the nation held on to this hope that one day God would bring his king. As a fulfilment to the promises made to Abraham and to David. And that king would undo the effects of the fall and reign over the world as God wanted us to do. And it's against that background that you have to read the New Testament and that you have to read the Gospels. Because even if you take the very first sentence of the first book in our New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, take the very first verse, and what do you read? You read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so you ask the question, what does Christ mean? It means Messiah or anointed one. It was the way of referring to God's anointed king. Messiah refers to that, Christ refers to that. And then we read on in Matthew chapter one, verse one, and it says, uh, the the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so what you're seeing is that at the very outset, what the gospel writers are saying is that the kingdom promises made in the Old Testament are being fulfilled in this one glorious man. Mm -hmm. And fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry around 30 years of age in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And what do we read there? We read from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the kingdom of heaven is near. What an incredible message for him to proclaim that the kingdom had come close. He was saying that the long-expected kingdom had drawn near. And again, don't divorce this from what God had planned at the beginning in the creation. Don't divorce it from what God had planned for Adam and Eve to enjoy dominion over creation. Because what the Lord Jesus was announcing was that that kingdom was going to come to pass through his reign. And mankind would once again enjoy dominion over creation through the rule that he was establishing. And this is important because it casts fresh light on the miracles of the Lord Jesus. Because oftentimes we think about the miracles of the Lord Jesus and we think that they're just demonstrations of power just because he could. They're awe and, and, and forced displays just to shock people, but really these aren't arbitrary. They're demonstrations that the king is establishing his kingdom and undoing the effects of the fall. He's undoing the effect of sin and death. And so when the Lord Jesus heals the sick, when he casts out demons, when he stills the storm, when he raises the dead, what he is doing is demonstrating through his power that he is the rightful king and he is undoing the effects of the fall back to what God intended for creation to be. But there is a conundrum here. Because people expected, and the Old Testament spoke of, when the kingdom of God came, that it would come with cataclysmic events, that the wicked would be instantly judged, and God's righteous people would enter into a new world. How can that be squared with the humility of the Lord Jesus, coming and announcing the kingdom of God, and yet actually himself going to a cross and dying a humiliating death? How can we square that? And there's several unsatisfactory ways of resolving the dilemma. One is to say that the Lord Jesus didn't actually bring God's kingdom to earth. But the Lord Jesus doesn't allow us that option And so in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28, he's speaking to religious leaders who obviously didn't believe that the Lord Jesus was bringing about God's kingdom. And the Lord Jesus says to them there, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what he's saying is that it has come. In his ministry. Or again in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 31, again surrounded by religious leaders who were skeptics and didn't believe that he was bringing about the kingdom of God. And he says to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. The sinners are getting into the kingdom of God ahead of you. And so clearly what he wanted us to understand was that the kingdom of God had come to pass in his ministry because he, the king, was there and was establishing his reign. People were entering the kingdom and sinners at that were entering that kingdom. Now another unsatisfactory way of resolving this tension between the kingdom Message being about a kingdom that has come now and something which is yet future is to say that the kingdom of God came entirely in Jesus' ministry, and that there is no future cataclysmic events yet to occur, and some people have indeed argued that. But the Lord Jesus, again, doesn't allow us that option, because again in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, he speaks about his coming in glory. And he describes how there's going to be a future day when he comes with the angels, and he will establish his throne for judgment. And just like a, a shepherd separates sheep and goats so also he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. This is something then that the Lord Jesus speaks about in his teaching, that there will come a day when there will be a cataclysmic judgment, and he will establish the kingdom. So how do we put these two ideas together? The idea that it's going to happen in the future, but it's already come in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Well, I think the best way of putting it together is to recognise that there are really two phases to the kingdom. There are two stages, if you will. And this isn't just something which I have come up with. This is something which the Lord Jesus describes in his own ministry as well. Because when you look at Matthew chapter 13, the Lord Jesus uses lots of parables to describe what his kingdom is like. And among other things, he says that his kingdom is like a mustard seed. It starts out as the smallest of seeds. So insignificant. And yet it grows into a tree that provides branches for the birds of the air to nest in. He also says it's like leaven that you take and you put into your dough and you leave it for a few hours. And then the the, the yeast, the, the leaven has come throughout the whole batch of dough. And he says that that's what his kingdom is like. And so what he's saying then is that there are two different aspects or phases to the kingdom, one in which is already present in his ministry in seed form, and one which is yet future, which is the completion or fulfilment of the kingdom. Now, I could say much more in that. That's sufficient to make my point that there are these two distinct phases to the revealing of God's kingdom. And I must also confess that I've spent a lot of time thus far, explaining this nature of the kingdom of God, and haven't said much yet about what it means for us to long for that kingdom to come. So... We come to that point now. But I think it's important to establish in our mind, first of all, what the kingdom is, before then we can think about what it means for us to pray that the kingdom would come. And if we're saying that there's two different aspects, two different phases to the kingdom of God, then I think when we pray for God's kingdom to come, it has to mean a request for both of these phases. Firstly then, let me explain what I mean by wanting God's kingdom to come in the present. What does that mean? How do we pray for God's kingdom to come in the present? And how does God answer that prayer? Well, I suppose the first way in which we see God's kingdom now is by the kingdom of God being expanded by people being added to it we see the kingdom of God growing as more and more people come into the kingdom. And this is what the Lord Jesus spoke about. You remember when he spoke to Nicodemus and he said to Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Essentially what he's saying is, if you want to be part of this kingdom of God, if you want to see it and enter it, then you need to be born again, because born again people become part of that kingdom. And again, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness where Satan reigns and have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so what Paul and what the New Testament emphasizes is that when we are converted, it's not just that there's been some kind of cognitive change of mind, some shift in mindset that has occurred. It's not just that our habits have changed, but in reality, there's been a whole shift in kingdoms. We've been transferred from one realm into an entirely different realm. And so when we pray that God's kingdom would come, we want it to become visible That God's kingdom is expanding by people entering that kingdom. By people being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dearly beloved son. And entering that kingdom can only be seen by faith now but it will be manifested in its reality in the coming day. And so we ought to be pleading earnestly with God that God's kingdom would come in the sense that it would be expanded. We would see it coming in the conversion of unbelievers and God's kingdom growing in that way. Another way in which we see the kingdom coming is when we start to see the further effects of God's work in our lives as he makes us to become kingdom citizens. So when he brings us into his kingdom, he doesn't just leave us the way we were, but he starts to shape us, and what we will be in a future day starts to become true in our lives now. And so at the end of Romans, Paul has to deal with some Christians who were using their freedom as Christians in a very unloving way. Essentially, some of the Gentile Christians, it seems, were saying that, you know, because these Mosaic laws in the Old Testament have passed and we are free to eat uh, a nice bit of sausage, for example, and if a Jewish brother or sister is offended by that, well, so be it. That's their problem. And Paul says to them that we should not be using our freedom to do such a thing. If our freedom causes another brother or sister to be hurt, to be wounded, then that is unloving and that is not at all to characterize us. And so what Paul says at the end of Romans in chapter 14 verse 17 is that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, we want to see the effects of the kingdom of God in our lives now. And so we see the kingdom of God coming in the present when we lead lead lives that are characterized by kingdom values now. When our lives become characterized by the life of the age to come which transforms us even now. What a solemn thing to pray for then, to ask that God's work would be so seen in our lives now that the kingdom of God can be seen in our lives And surely the kingdom of God can be said to have come in part when the reality of God's reign becomes visible in our lives and in the way we treat our brothers and sisters. And so taking the words of the Lord Jesus again, we plead that God's kingdom would come and that his reign would be manifested in the way we live our lives. Still a further way in which we see the kingdom of God coming in the present is in our worship. And so if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, John the writer pours out his worship to the Lord Jesus and says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so John connects us being a kingdom with our priestly worship and so expects us as a kingdom to actually manifest that through our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and our worship of God. You see, one of the things that we're created for, I, I suppose that the preeminent thing that we're created for, is to worship God, to praise God. And so as God's kingdom is manifested in the undoing of the effects of the fall, we turn from the worthless idols of this world and turn to praise and worship God, and in that way, God's kingdom is seen in the present. And so in these different ways, God's kingdoms can be said to have come in the present and can be said to be coming in the present. And so when we ask for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that God's kingdom would be expanded. Through people coming into it. We're praying that we'd be increasingly seen as kingdom people, the values of the kingdom being manifested in our lives. And we're praying that our worship would demonstrate the lives of those who are part of the kingdom of God. But of course, to say that the kingdom is present now is only part of the story, like I've said. And so we need to think as well about what it means to long for the kingdom to come in the future. And I think this is an important point to emphasise. Because I think that many people who aren't believers, who aren't Christians, really have a very shallow understanding of what it means to believe the gospel. They think that Christians believe the gospel because it means they'll go to heaven when they die and that's it. And that's the limit of their understanding of what the gospel is about. You, You go to heaven when you die. And so they think that our hope is about a disembodied existence in heaven for all eternity. But what they don't realize is that our hope as Christians is that the same Jesus who walked in this earth 2,000 years ago is going to come someday. And he's going to manifest his reign on the earth, he's going to judge the wicked, and he's going to establish his kingdom forever and ever. And his people will reign with him in a new creation. That's the the hope of the scriptures. And frankly, that's an astonishing thing to believe. It's quite easy for people to believe that after you die, well, perhaps some part of you continues to live on in, in some kind of ethereal existence. A lot harder for people to come to terms with the fact that the same Jesus that walked this earth will one day shatter the kingdoms of this world and establish his reign over it all. And so some people in this world believe that this world will end with a bang, perhaps a nuclear holocaust or something. We'll all just destroy ourselves. Some people believe that it'll end in a whimper as eventually human beings die out because of one reason or another and eventually the sun wears out and everything will just fade to a whimper. But Christians believe neither of those things because we believe that Jesus Christ will return and will put right what our rebellion against God has done. He will eradicate the effects of sin and death and we will reign with him. So the future for us is incredibly bright. But what are the implications then of praying that God's kingdom would come in the future? Well, there's two implications that stand out for me. There's probably many more. Firstly, when we ask for God's kingdom to come, what we're saying is that the kingdoms of this world, the politics of this world, and all of the causes of this world are not ultimate. To be true, we should care about the way the world is. We should want the good of those around us we want people to see that we serve a a gracious lord and saviour we want people to enter into the kingdom of God in the present but we don't put our hopes in any of the kingdoms or causes of this world they'll all fail and they'll all fall to dust but God's kingdom will never be shaken And since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, in the words of the writer to the Hebrews, then we simply cannot regard the affairs of this world as being ultimate issues. We can't bank all of our hopes here. Now secondly, an implication of praying for God's kingdom to come is to recognise that his kingdom is the only realm that ultimately matters and when we get gripped with that reality then all of the comforts of this world, all of the pleasures of this world become nothing by comparison to the pleasures that will be ours in the kingdom of God In fact, the Lord Jesus tells us to invest in heavenly things to invest in the kingdom of God because that's an investment that will not rust, that will not get stolen and will make a true return. All of your investments in this life will ultimately come to nothing. But all of your investments in the coming kingdom have eternal value because they will never fade away. And that's not to say that this life isn't important, that what we do in the present isn't important, because it's vitally important. Some people think that Christians are so caught up with the world to come that the present no longer has any significance. But it's the opposite. It's precisely because the future matters that everything we do in the present has eternal ramifications. The things that we do today are not just insignificant events. The things that we do today and tomorrow and the next day have eternal reverberations. They will echo on for eternity forever and ever and ever. And that's why precisely the things that we do now matter so much. Because we're investing in eternity. We're investing in the kingdom of God. And so the words, your kingdom come are weighty words and they express the longings of the whole Bible from the very beginning in Genesis where God places mankind over creation. The whole story of the Bible is moving through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to reclaim that kingdom and secure us as guilty sinners as part of that kingdom so that when it comes in the future, we will reign with Jesus Christ. And so longing for the kingdom of God means that we long in the present for people to be brought into God's kingdom. It means that we long for God's kingdom to be known by undeserving sinners like ourselves, who have found that in the kingdoms of this world where we might not be welcome. That actually we have come to a king, we've come to a kingdom where the most undeserving of people like ourselves are washed and welcomed as heirs of that kingdom. or A privileged thing. And so may these words of the Lord Jesus find a place on our lips that echo the desire of our hearts that God's kingdom might come. Let's pray. Father, we thus pray in the words of the Lord Jesus that your kingdom would come. We long for your kingdom to be expanded that sinners might be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of your beloved son. We long too for the reality of your kingdom to be demonstrated in our lives now by righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But we long most of all for that day when our Lord Jesus will return. We long for that day that we've spoken about, when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We long for that day when the shadow of death that is cast over our world will be taken away and every tear will be wiped away from every eye and there we, your people, will be with the Lord Jesus, enjoying your presence, worshipping you for all eternity. Mm -hmm. Hasten that day, Lord, because it is our glorious hope and we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I'll okay.